and we were doing osteotomies and everything just, I tapped, you know, a couple times and it just shattered, just shattered. You know, that, 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 that moment of like, oh my, this is, this is really bad. So hello and welcome to this episode of the Rhinoplasty podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. Uh, we are working through the month of March, kindly brought to us by Carl Stortz Instruments. Um, and it's quite apt that the World Rhinoplasty Day um, month is done by Carl Stortz because they are like the World Rhinoplasty Instruments, as it were. So tonight I've got a very special guest. Um, I mean, this man needs no introduction, the chair of Duke plastic surgery and the champion of the 2020 World Rhinoplasty Day, Dr. Jeff Marcus. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Cam. Great to see you. Great to be here. Awesome, man. Jeff, so so we're going to kick it off. We've got so many things to chat about. Um, I just still vividly remember meeting you three years ago when you and Spencer Cochram came out to South Africa. It was a delight to have the two of you as our guest speakers at our second Saucer Congress. And... Um, I always remember when, whenever Stuart and I are operating, sometime during the operation, we'd be pausing and we'd say to ourselves, what would Jeff do? Um, it's just like <laughs> an ongoing little joke for us. Eh? And I, I can still, one of the things that stood out for me was, it, it's, it's funny how rhinoplasty is this, it's this speciality with these tiny little things that change things dramatically. And I can still remember whenever I do it, like a turnover or t- turn under flap of the lateral cura, there's a tiny little corner that I remove. And I'll always remember your talk on that. Yeah, that's important. You got to remember that corner. It looks really small, but it's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Jeff, the before we get into, into some of the nitty gritty stuff about rhinoplasty, you, I'll just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, you and Jill married, kids? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm uh, living in North Carolina. Uh, Duke University is in Durham, North Carolina. And uh, I live here with Jill, who you met and who says hello uh, to both you and Stu. She thinks Stu has the most fabulous hair in all of plastic surgery. Uh, we have uh, our two kids, Claire and Owen, and they're 12 and 8. Um, and, um, you know, that's our family. And it's crazy. There's cats, dogs, hamsters, and all kinds of stuff going on here. And what do you do when you're not uh, working at, at the plastic surgery unit? Well, besides chasing around the kids, that's, uh, that's kind of the big thing. But, um, you know, trying to keep up with all of the things that they like to do. Um, uh, we recently uh, got a home in the mountains in North Carolina where we've been uh, traveling out to. It's uh, out on a lake and we're really just kind of enjoying getting away from time to time and going around and looking at the, the wildlife and, you know, just hope, hopefully relaxing here and there. That's great. And, and, and tell me, how did you end up getting into plastic surgery to start with? So, yeah, I mean, my, my, my path, I was, a, I was a medical student at the University of Michigan, and um, I definitely was not one of these, I wasn't one of these kids who just kind of always knew what they wanted to do. Um, I started out, you know, I figured out, it's one of these, where generally people gravitate toward where their personality takes them. And that's what I know now, but at the, and people said it at the time, but I didn't realize it. Um, so, you know, happens that, you know, I tend to be a rather impatient person. Um, I like instant gratification. I don't like to wait for things. I like things to be very clear and evident. I don't like, I like things that are either, you know, very clearly successful or not. Um, and, you know, it turns, and, and I do like to use my hands a great deal and always had before. So 
um, I was very open-minded about a lot of things, but it became pretty, you know, pretty clear to me soon that surgery was going to be it for me and started looking at things like surgical oncology. And I'd spent some time at the National Cancer Institute here in, uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, and I realized that, you know, it was saving lives um, is is one of the things that was you know so uh, fulfilling about it. But a lot of times you were uh, taking things apart and making a big mess out of situations in the course of trying to save a life. And and it could be very you know from time to from time to time that was that would be also rather distressing even when you did save them. And um, you know the reconstructive surgeons in particular would come and the job was always such a positive experience. They were always putting things back together and. Um, it's just a feeling of positivity that went with that. And the technical part of it was, was so, uh, inspiring as well. So then, you know, there was that element to it. Um, thought a lot about cleft lip and palate and, uh, thought a lot about going into, uh, otolaryngology. And I had a couple of, uh, mentors, uh, one who was the chair, of, uh, at, at, uh, VNT at, at Michigan at the time. And he was a facial plastic surgeon, um, and also my mentors in, uh, in, in, you know, in plastic surgery. And then amongst everybody, once, you know, I really started coming, you know, narrowing down a little bit. Um, they were all great in terms of uh, advising me what they thought the, uh, a good path uh, would be. And so I think, you know, that's ultimately what, you know, what happened. Um, you know, as a kid, my, I had a grandfather who uh, grew up in, in Europe, in Poland, as in he was a tailor. And he taught me how to sew when I was six or seven years old, something, you know, and which I thought was completely normal. Um, and, you know, we used to, you know, build like models with my dad and, using only, you know, he was, I was only, I was in charge of doing everything that was tiny. Anything that was tiny was my job. And uh, so painting little things and so on. So, you know, the thing that's just where it happens. And so my, my life was, you know, gearing itself toward instant gratification, things that were very visual, things where involved the use of my hands, specifically very, very small and fine and detailed things. And the more challenging, the better. So, what does that describe? It's that's rhinoplasty. But no, no, I think it describes more than just rhinoplasty. I mean, you within the rhino, most of the people on this um, podcast are rhinoplasty focused. But you more than just rhinoplasty within plastics. What are some of the other passions within plastic surgery? Yeah, I as, so I started out. You know, when I, I came, I came to my present job in like 2002, um, coming out of Toronto at the time, where I was a fellow in craniofacial and then in pediatric plastic surgery. And, so I was asked to build a bunch of programs to sort of emulate what they were doing at the hospital for sick children in Toronto, create these things, you know, here that they have there. And being naive, I figured, okay, well, I'll try. Uh, I can do that. And so I did. I mean, and, and I spent a good amount of time, you know, really building up on the cleft lip and palate and craniofacial uh, program, creating something that, you know, was here, but not, you know, not in a, at a large scale. Um, we did a lot of work in facial paralysis and reanimation in Toronto, and I was creating that that program as well. So um, it's interesting because the circles I run, and it depends on who you talk to, what they think I do, because, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the cleft and craniofacial world, and they have no idea that I, you know, that I'm doing, you know, rhinoplasty at any level. And they say, oh, I didn't know you do rhinoplasty. And then I, then I you know, I'm spending time in the rhinoplasty world and, um People think, first of all, they think, you know, most, a lot of people think I'm an ENT. They don't really, you know, some of them don't have any idea that I do any of the other stuff. So uh, it's, it's kind of fun. Um, so I, I do enjoy the, the breadth and, you know, a, a larger scope of things. And I've certainly pared it down quite a bit. It used to be even more broad than that. So Jeff, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I hadn't known how much craniofacial stuff you did either. The other thing that I find so intriguing and it, 
brings me back to one of my first visits to Rod Rorick in Dallas, where uh, I'd watched him for two weeks, where he is grinding and he's working early and he's editing the PRS and all this kind of stuff. And I, I, in South Africa, in a way, there's a split between what we'd call the academics and the private practice. And um, after two weeks, I stopped, I asked him the one day during a procedure, I said to him, Prof, how do you find time for the academics? And he put a scalpel down and he stared at me and said, Cameron, academia is a state of mind. And I, this is what inspires me about you guys is that this is the other thing. I mean, you, you're the chair of Duke Plastic Surgery. So it's a massively academic um, situation you find yourself in. How do you marry those two of your clinical love for using your hands and working in all these different kinds of plastic surgery and then at the same time having to run an academic department? How did you get into academia like that? Um, well, I mean, I think, you know, first of all, I guess I actually kind of agree with Rod on that is that, and I tell my residents all this too, I, I say it a lot, is that it doesn't matter what the, you know, what the, what the building looks like where you're working to be, you know, to be an academic means to love to share knowledge in some way or in, in any way or form, really. Um, so, you know, you could be in a big, uh, a big university kind of situation or tower, or you can be on a podcast right now, like we're doing. So you are, uh, you are an academic. You love to teach, you love to share information and you want to share it widely. And I was so, you know, that's why I've been so impressed by, you know, what, you know, what you've done, not only with creating the society, but then with all of these things, you know, the podcast, you know, the podcast, of course, but, you know, creating World Rhinoplasty Day and, you know, all of the, the things that all the webinars and, that took place even before that. So um, you're as academic as anybody I know. And so how do you, you know, how do you manage it? So you basically partition your time and somehow you figure out you, you, you know, you have to, you, you have to try to marry things too. Like you um, get some good synergy. So I'm going to spend my time, you know, teaching rhinoplasty to residents. Okay. Well, while we do that, let's take a whole ton of pictures and let's talk about a topic and then let's think about you know the cases and we're going to write about it. And so we, we think about it, we spend that time, we create presentations, and then we ask a question and we investigate it. And now we have a paper and then we have a presentation and then, you know, we've, and people are interested and they want to know, you know, what it is we do. So, um, that's really like that, that's the thing that has, that drove me the most was just that desire to share the information, to teach with residents, but then, you know, more globally. And I'd say the only, you know, a difference, I mean, I have to deal with a bunch of bureaucracy within the university and you have to deal with a bunch of bureaucracy in a business, in running a, you know, practice. Um, but we're both trying to teach people about like what it is that we do. And that's just, just pure, pure passion. It does, it doesn't come from anywhere other than just desire. Cause a lot of the things that you do and I do, you know, you're not really being compensated for that. I mean, it's just, you do, why do you do it? I don't know. Cause I love doing it. Yeah, exactly. No, it's not it's half past midnight. Yeah. Waking up chatting to you, which is great. So, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're in the middle of the night talking to me. What are you thinking? <laughs> uh, it's, no, it's, it's lovely because it's cool. Tell me, Jeff, can you remember a defining moment in terms of rhinoplasty in your career? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. I got yeah, a couple bad moments too, actually. So, um, I'd say, uh, boy, um, I'd say to start, you know, when in, I, I was in Chicago and I was training at Northwestern and, um, there were two surgeons there that were doing a lot of rhinoplasty and one was Tom Musto and he was trained in, in ENT and then in plastic surgery, sort of dual, uh, boarded that way. And he was the chief of the division. And then there was Peter McKinney, um, who a lot of the listeners may know and many may not realize, but Peter McKinney, who was one of the founding, 
um, members of the Rhinoplasty Society. Um, he was a uh, private practice in Chicago. He was on faculty at Northwestern for most of his career. Um, probably best known for McKinney's Point, which is where the um, you know, where the greater auricular nerve kind of crosses over the sternocleidomastoid. Um, so he's got ton, he had tons of really helpful publications. And so I always had one doing, you know, closed rhinoplasty. The other one was doing open rhinoplasty and going back and forth and trying to talk to them and understand, you know, they had completely different philosophies. Um, and I was fascinated by this. I think probably the thing that, that was the most, what got me probably the most at the time was, um, we would go over, going over the pictures prior to the case and trying to come up with the plan. I loved doing that doing the analysis and trying to, you know, challenging myself. Can I get this right? Do I really actually know what I'm talking about here? And, and I realized at one point in time that in some of those cases, I realized it might be better for me if I don't scrub. It sounds crazy. I would ask, can I not scrub this? Cause I want to just take notes. I got to take notes. And so that was one moment. It was the moment where I realized that the operation is in your head. It isn't really in, in your hands. And I didn't know anything else that was like that, not to that level. You know, all of the things that we do, you know, whether things that you were doing in, in training and me, there were so few things that were that were that intense about the thought process, not just before, but during too, because you have to adapt as you're going a lot of times. Like you encounter things that you think you were prepared for every little thing, but sometimes you're not and you have to change your plan. So that, that got me. The other one that was... Um, I think it was more of the challenge and the hum and the humbling aspect of it. So why is this thing so, so humbling? Of course, you know, I was always hearing people say, you know, Jack Gunter used to say, if you've done a thousand rhinoplasties, you know, you're just beginning or you're just, you know, you're just starting or, you know, and, you know, I've never done one that I never done. I've never done one that's perfect, but I'm going to keep trying. He said that, like, just probably I've talking to him before he passed away. And he said it, I'm sure he said it a million times, but, um, you know, I, just, I was doing something as a chief resident. It was a it was a cleft rhinoplasty that I was doing with a mentor of mine, and you know, was, patient had had some prior work done and had also some trauma too. And of course, we were in a situation where it was um, we didn't have all the best instruments, I'll admit, um, at the time, and we were doing osteotomies, and everything just I tapped you know a couple times and it just shattered, just shattered. You know that the that 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 moment of like, oh my. This is, this is really bad. And uh, so of course I'd never experienced anything like that before. And, you know, the person I was with didn't panic at all. And we actually, you know, we carefully had managed to, um, to, to pack gradually piece by piece. We packed it, you know, inside and then compressed on the outside and managed to get things into, you know, appropriate position. And I continued to follow that, that, uh, that kid for about mm, six to six to 10 months. Um, and I was shocked at how good things actually turned out. Um, so moral of the story there was, um, this is a, it's an operation that should be respected and it is challenging and, and humbling to anyone. It should never be taken lightly. And that also that, you know, there are solutions to most problems mm. and, and you just have to keep, keep your head in the game. Mm -hmm. And in most cases, you'll be able to figure out a way to get through. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think it, one of the things patients don't always understand is that people can often see good results, but they don't realize that behind the scenes, that's the whole point of being board certified and trained is that you can deal the complications. When things go wrong, yeah. who do you want? 
it's not the guy who's there when things go right. It's when things go wrong. That's the person you really want on your side. And I often will, will say that to patients. Every patient I see, there has to be that trust before, from both sides before we even consider wanting to do further surgery because it's so complicated that the 3D look of the nose, and here we are, we operating right in the center of the face. So, yeah, the rhinoplasty, yeah. I think I love it. We've got to respect the operation massively. Yeah, I think uh, it's like I kind of taken off on one of your points. I was just talking to I saw a bunch of patients today in clinic, and one of, you know one of the lines I often talk about. You know, we I meet, I tell them that you know my I have I have a job here. I, I have something that I need to get um, from our conversation, and you have a part something that you're needing to get. And for me, I have to understand. I have to understand what it is you're hoping to achieve here, and I have to see if I can if I understand all the things that concern you, and if the things that you see and that bother you are the same things that. I am noticing and that when I'm looking at you and observing, and if I feel that these are things I'm capable of helping, then, then I know that I'm going to be able to at least offer to you, you know, what I, what I can. And your from your position, all this is that you have to be able to look at me and think I'm not crazy. And I trust this person to actually carry out what he says he can do. So if you feel that I'm, that, uh, that I don't seem crazy to you and what I'm about to tell you and, and trust that I'm a, that I, that I can help you. Um, and if I'm honest with myself, knowing that I feel good confidence, uh, about uh, being able to help what you, what you're, mm. what you're hoping to change, we're going to be good. Mm. So Jeff, um, one of the things that you've sometimes mentioned in your talks is like a surgical toolbox. I want to take it a step further and say, I think in many of the webinars we've been teaching colleagues about surgical tools. But there's this massive part of pre-surgery and post-surgery. So what I'd like to ask you is how in all three of those aspects, before you even cut the skin, when you're doing the operation and after the operation, how over the last two decades or three decades that you've been doing rhinoplasty, has that changed for you? Which, which new tools are you using? Which old tools are you not using so much? Um, I know within the surgical side, I'm quite interested to talk to you a little bit more about piezo. Um, but to kick it off, the difference between the Jeff Marcus now compared to many years ago, when a patient comes to see you, what are the big changes in that pre-op consultation? Um, <laughs> in the pre-op, Okay. First of all, I, I don't look like I'm 12 anymore. That's helpful. You look um, like that's helpful to gain now. trust. <laughs> yeah, uh, I tell you, getting 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 full folks who are old, older to to uh, to to buy in when you look like you're you know just graduating college or something. You know that's tough. But so I look a little bit older. That's helpful. Um, I'd say first of all, the confidence level is there, and there's no there isn't any way to turn that on. Um, in earnest, you can put, you know, you can pretend and you can put it on, but really with, um, with time and with experience, you know, your confidence is there where you can say, and you look at something you say, yes, I can tell you, I've seen this a bunch. Yes. I, I've seen this a bunch of times and you know, this isn't unusual. You're fine. It's, it's absolutely normal and we're going to be fine. I can, I know exactly what to do. Let me show you what it is. Um, you know, spotting things right away and they, you know, and you know, that, that sort of um, uh, well, confidence, it just, it really uh, puts people at ease and makes the whole consult go better. I think so that's one thing. Um, so the way you carry yourself is, I'd say that's one way that things have changed a lot. Learning how to talk to people in such a way that you, know, you can engender and, and gain that level of trust. So when, you want, when I walk in, I've learned at this point, 
I don't even, I, I don't start talking about anything related to the nose for Oh, like at least, I don't know. I mean, at least until I figure out where are they from? What do they do? You know, they have kids. What do you work? What do you like? I like to talk about what's, you know, who they are. And then by the time I say, well, I guess you're here probably to talk about your nose, right? I think uh, my nurse was saying, and um, she said that you mentioned this and this and they say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, oh, great. Um, so learning how to approach somebody and to talk to them and look at them and make them, you know, understand that you actually do care about them as a person and you're not just trying to like, you know, book that book, the consult, you know? So rushing through is not a good idea in rhinoplasty. It's not really a good idea in anything. And I realize it's hard. Rhinoplasty is not an operation that you can just turn over quickly, um, where you can do, you know, um, assembly line type of an approach. It's hard to do it that way. Um, you have to, you know, it's helpful to connect with people because, as, as what I was saying, like, as Jack Gunter said, he'd never done a perfect nose, but he was going to keep on trying. The same is going to be true for me. I should know that. I should know that. So if there are going, if there's going to be something that's an imperfection afterward, and maybe the patient may notice and maybe they don't, but if they do notice and there's something that's imperfect, if your relationship with them is good, then you'll be able to have a conversation about that problem. And they'll trust you when you, when they say, and they say, and, and I'll tell them even, if you ever have a problem or if you ever have a concern, I just want to let you know, please never feel afraid to mention it. You can tell me because I promise you, I already saw it. Mm. Well, that's, that's amazing. I'd say that's, yeah. So I'd say that's one is so having how to have a, that conversation um, so in the pre-op and putting people at ease and creating the rapport that's there. And if you don't have that, um, you know, as Mark Constantin says, you know, that is, you've got to know when to recognize, you know, and we can get into that too, you know, all of the things that are, the warning signs um, about about folks. Another one would be, I think, the the analysis. Um, I never, I was very resistant, and of course the technology changed, but I was resistant to morphing for a long time. Um, so photo manipulation and simulation, um, in part because I was seeing it being used initially for a long time. I, th I thought it was being used as simply a marketing tool, and I believe it was for some. And they could, you know, where folks, you know, surgeon can, can, can do, you know, quite a lot on the, on the computer and maybe, you know, it was a good way to, it was a useful way for them to uh, book the case, basically to turn over that consult and, you know, to, cause the patient can look at that and be like, okay, well, great. That's what I want. I'm in. Um, the problem is that sometimes I don't necessarily think people were always being realistic. That was one. Um, and of course putting as many, you can write as many disclaimers as you want on there, but the patient has seen it. Once they've seen it, no disclaimer gets, no disclaimer counts that out. That's what they expect. Um, and that bothered me a little bit. I was afraid that people may, you know, their expectations, you know, may, may not be in line. Um, and then also some of the technology, even at the time was just unwieldy. It was just, my God, it would take like, you know, I'm going to spend, you know, 40, 30, 40 minutes just messing around on the computer because that's what it would take to use what we had, you know, at that point. So I was pretty resistant. I was using, um, you know, full size um, images, printed images and drawing on them. And I still do a lot of drawing. So I think where I am now is that I blended in. I still love to draw. I still love to show that use the, the hard copy photographs. I still like to do diagrams saying this is how it's going to be done. Cause I like to, I'm a nerd about rhinoplasty, just like I know you are. Um, we're, we like to nerd out about this stuff. And some patients, some patients enjoy that piece. Um, but now I've incorporated some of the, um, uh, the simulations are so easy now. 
And you can do a few simple things. And if you're honest and you know what, I, now what I notice is that I don't even take it to the point where I would really like it to go. I go a little shy of that. I'm just going to go a little bit better. And then they say, yes, I love it. And I'm like, good. Cause it's going to be better. And in my head, I'm thinking it's going to be better than that. Yeah, yeah. So if you like that, we're fine. That's cool. That's cool. Um, wow. That'd be my pre-op. Yeah. That's very interesting. You I mean you can't buy experience, and that's what years and years of experience brings you. Um, okay, so tell yeah. me about your surgical toolbox. Which tools have now moved further down, and which tools are new or have moved up? Yeah, so this is one where um, if you go back to like when you know when I was when I was starting, you know there was a lot of the arguments at that point. Was, the closed open argument was still very much in effect, and of course you know we've practically gotten past that now because it's clear that there's a place for both. Um, and now that might, might be a matter of preference. Some people may choose not to, not to do one versus the other, but there's definitely a place for both. Same surgeon might, you know, uh, decide in certain instances that they prefer to do one or the other. And I have, I have full res total respect for all, all rhinoplasty surgeons who are able to get great results, no matter how they can do it. I don't care how they get there. It's hard operation. If you can get a good result, I respect you. Um, so I think we're beyond that. Um, and, and I think the tools at that time were also, very like crude. So we were doing at that point, I don't say crude, but like, for example, you know, every patient who had an open rhinoplasty was said to need a columella strut. If you do an open rhinoplasty, you're destabilizing the tip. You need to have a columella strut. Not only that, it better be really stiff too. So sometimes we're going to need to put a K wire in that columella strut and we're going to put it into the anterior nasal spine because we thought that it needed to be that. Or we would put it, we would put it all the way down onto the spine, or, or very, very close, because we thought it needed to rest there. But then they started clicking back and forth, and the patients would come back and they say, "Why is this thing clicking here? It's driving me crazy." So you know that was that was something that, that was um, pretty ubiquitous actually in, in the open world. Of course, now you know we've we've come to learn that there are other ways to do you know to get projection that don't require that. I mean, and there's you know pros and cons for the new things too. Uh, and I'll go in, I can mention a little, I'll get to that part in a, in a moment, but then um, spreader grafts um, also were something that were pretty, pretty widespread uh, at the time for good reasons and many, you know, for functional reasons. But, you know, as things go, there's always enthusiasm that hits a big wave. And then we realize that maybe we're applying these probably a little more often than we really need to, because it's a very useful tool, but does it need to come out of the toolbox every single time? Same with chymelostrates. Do we throw, you know, are we never going to do them? Mm. Not a never, it's just, you know, we're going to pick and choose maybe. We're going to add some new tools into the box now as we, as the years go on and we all, like we learn of things and some things are very esoteric and we confuse the hell out of learners because we keep introducing things that are like minutia and esoteric and, and kind of just maybe useful in a particular circumstance or, or not. Um, I think that's the way I looked, I've always looked at it, is it, it, I'm collecting tools as I go in the box and I'm realizing which ones are the most useful things and which ones are not as useful, which things come out a lot, which kind, which are used for specific circumstances. And I think that that's, and that's why I teach my residents that, you know, um, you know, certain things are in the top shelf of the box. And then there are certain things that are in that bottom bin. And so they'll say, what is this thing I hear about? And they'll mention, you know, a little technique, which a, let's say there's a useful technique like facet grafts or like a little, you know, there's little butterfly grafts that help, you know, for the infralobule. Well, it's a very cool technique. It's very nerdy. I love it because I I can see where that's helpful. You know, Ash Gavami and some other people, they ask me about that. I go, listen, that's going to be in the bottom bin of the box and it's useful for some specific circumstances, but that's not 
the success of your operation isn't going to depend on that. The success of your operation is going to depend on some, of, you know, on the big things, the main things that really are, you know, that lead to, um, you know, success versus failure. Those are the, and the tools you're going to use for those, those are going to be on your top shelf. You're going to use them a lot. So you got to get projection correct. You got to get the right amount of projection. You have to get the right amount of rotation and you've got to get the dorsum proper in its position and, and shape and, you know, and prominence relative to the tip. If you can do those three main things, the rest of the other, the other things will be relatively small. Doesn't mean, you know, they're not important. It's just that they are not going to lead you into like a major revision. Mm. No, absolutely. So, so, so I think I, and, and what are some of your opinions on, on this new kind of debate that seems to be raging between preservation and structural rhinoplasty? I, I, I think, um, and I, but it might be quite controversial to say, I think there's a lot of it's to do with marketing. You know, Rod Lowe's saying, you, everyone's world famous on their own website. Yeah. Um, well, so I'll go back to kind of what I was saying a, a, a moment ago is that uh, if you can, if, if a surgeon can achieve a great result, to me, it almost, it, I don't, I don't really care what it is they're doing, if they can do it, if they're getting a, that great result, because I'm going to want to understand it. I may not be able to pull it off or do it because I know that, um, it's, it isn't a part of, you know, it's not a part of me at the moment. So I don't want to discount it. I want to, I do want to hear about it though, and analyze it. I want to see if what they're doing, if what, if what's being done is better, easier, or less risky than what I'm doing. And so if, and, and I'm not there yet, I haven't figured it out yet, but I will share that, you know, I've seen some tremendous, I've seen some phenomenal results. Um, my friend, Lauren Rosenfield, who's in San Francisco, is a great aesthetic surgeon and teacher always says, you know, he always gives caution to, you know, the, the, the shows that sometimes we as surgeons put on because, you know, we don't always show our problems and we don't always show the bad outcomes or those, you know, the, those kinds of things. And so that is not me saying that I believe that those bad things, you know, that there are bad outcomes that we're not hearing about, but in time, we'll learn a little more about what kinds of you know pitfalls are there. You know, what are the cases you don't want to do it on? What, how do you fix those? Um, and I'm not. That's where I'm not. I'm not quite there yet. And so it's. I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's. I don't necessarily think it's a point of controversy because it's right now. It's a matter of preference. Um, the fact that 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 they're able to that the proponents uh, are able to generate so much enthusiasm for it. Well, sure, that does actually bring a lot of attention to them as surgeons for not only in the community as, as teachers, because they're they're packing, you know, lectures with these uh, with that subject because people are dying to hear about it. And that's great for them. Um, and their patients are paying attention too. but I think that we'll real over time, we'll figure out, you know, what's you know, what's the place. I was talking to um, Enrico um, uh, Rabati about it. And, you know, he he was giving some of his thoughts about, you know, how to, can we incorporate this or not? And, um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it, but you know, I'm not sure I'm not an old person, but I've been doing this for about 20 years and it is, it is hard to make a big change like that. And so I have to figure out like, if I want to try when am I going to take that chance? Yeah. Yeah. And what do you, what do you think? I mean, are you going to give it a go? So good question. I, I've, what I've, my greatest way I've learned rhinoplasty is by visiting surgeons around the world. And there's always a lot to be taken out of a Congress, which is more like in a way, an academic thing. Someone gets up there, they give a lecture, great lecture, et cetera. But nothing beats being with somebody 
in a clinical situation. So literally sitting next to somebody when they're interviewing the patient the first time or standing next to somebody or assisting them in surgery because that's when the mistakes happen. And you think to yourself, how? Like a guy would be on a tertiary rhinoplasty and he's he's busy dissecting the nose, Chup, goes straight through the skin. Oh, no, don't worry, we'll just suture up. And I was like, this is amazing. So my my kind of journey with the, the so I've, I've watched Miggle, he operated with us a, a, a preservation case two years ago, but I haven't had enough time on the, what I would call the clinical side. So on the academic side of understanding and listening to the lectures, et cetera, sure, I'll tick that box and I think that it's a great idea, but I'm not comfortable enough yet because it's my reputation. I have to have to be able to um, prove to these guys that, that um, I know what I'm doing if I'm going to operate. You know, there was one to that point. That's a, um, so I, I did the same thing and I wish I could do more, by the way. And if, you know, for people who are listening, especially if you're, you know, early on and you, if you have an opportunity to go spend time um, with people, you know, directly, definitely I would urge you to do that. Um, I did spend, uh, I did go out with, you know, there was one individual I went to see at one point and who was doing something that was, you know, rather new and, and also, I guess, had some controversy to it as well. And also had, there were some, you know, comments about it being used as a marketing situation, but I wanted to see it. And I, um, and there definitely was a lot to learn. I'll tell you that because it, you know, just as you said, it's never quite exactly what it, you think it is. Um, and, at, and I think at its worst that there were points I thought, this is a mess. This is just a mess. I'm like, this is not what I thought at all. Um, so, yeah, I think there's something to that. And that's not to say that every new thing is a problem. It's just be careful, you know, about like about judgments, I think. So we're talking about like, yeah, new, you know, new ideas, new techniques and controversies and the, you know, the role of um, the value in visiting in visiting people. I was just saying that I, I, I just I could not agree more. I think it's really I wish I had a chance to visit more people. And I think I probably will try now. Um, I do think if I if I end up if I end up um, doing some work with preservation, um, I probably would go out and visit with Sam, in part because Sam and I are really good friends, Sam Most in San Francisco, in part because we're really good friends, but also because his take on, on new ideas um, is always slightly different. He always um, has a slightly different way of looking at it where it's a little bit more pragmatic. Um, so that's kind of the thing. Um, he, he, he thinks about it for a while and he thinks, well, I like that. I think it might be helpful, but I might be able to do that safer if I do it this way. Mm. Yeah, we had a very interesting talk uh, uh, last month with him. The one thing also in the surgical toolbox, which is also new, is the whole piezo side of things. So I'm just kind of dipping my my toe into the ocean and I'm enjoying it tremendously. So here's the big question. And this is the, this is really the decider because there is, in my opinion, like there's, there's no doubt that that is a, it is absolutely useful. And I've played with it and it is, it, there's so many cool advantages that it offers. The big problem is this in the United States, and this may not be true elsewhere, and it's probably not true in private practice in the United States, but when you work in a large institution in the United States, and if the package says single use only, then it's single use only. You can't re-sterilize it. And the, one of the, the biggest, like, you know, I think, I think values with Piezo is that you can have a number of different working tips and Olivier created, I don't even know how many, Olivier Gerbeau, um, who created, I think there's maybe 10 or more on the little, on that small set. And, you know, one's for scraping, one's for burring, one's for cutting, one's for drilling, and they're so useful. 
And um, I, I did visit with him once too and watch, you know, in a particular case, you know, where he used, I'd say he used at least four or five different ones for different purposes during the case. But the problem in the U.S. is that every one of those has says single use only. And I'm at an institution that reads the packages. And so they they just won't allow that. And so I can't, and if I, I can't charge, you know, I don't even remember what it is now, 250, you know, U.S. for for one of those tips, you know, forget it. I can't, I can't add that kind of cost onto the case. Um, whereas I do like power, power equipment. So I do have, you know, um, micro saws and micro burrs, but the tips are, you know, $25. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, Jeff. So, so let, let's talk a little bit more about the, your, your post care toolbox, how things have changed. What, because this I think is where the mistakes that we make really change things for us. And what's changed for you over the last 20 years? Um, I don't, not, I, not a lot, to be honest with you, um, in post-op care. I had, I've always had kind of a ritualistic, um, sort of a way of doing things with taping and probably some of what I do is even unnecessary. So taping and splinting and, um, use some internal splints. Probably I'm doing more often. Um, anytime I'm doing work with the turbinates, I'm going to do something to keep them out to the side and hold the septum straight in the middle. Um, I think that those are helpful. They weren't, they didn't, we didn't have those when I started. So channeled splints like Doyle splints, they, they actually weren't available. We used to cut, um, actually we used to take plastic milk jugs and cut this, you know, the thin, it was thin, flexible plastic and they would cut them to be, you know, the proper size and shape. And then we would sterilize them. And that's, <laughs> that's what we used. And then they came up with, um, you know, with Doyles, which are, are great for, for, for when you're doing turbinate work. Um, being mindful and uh, I'd say maybe more vigilant about hematoma, um, you know, being when a particular phone calls, I'd say if a, if a patient, there are particular buzzwords that a patient might call and say, when I know you come, this is that word. If that word's used, you're coming in no matter what. So anybody who says that they've got a funny smell, my my office knows funny smell, come in now. It's just the way it is. Um, I see something fullness. I see something in, you know, fullness inside my nose. Come in now. I see something full in my nose. So I think being a little bit, you know, maybe vigilant and, you know, just with experience, you know, kind of maybe, you know, what, what things have, need to be addressed right away. And pain. Well, how about you? What do you, what do you, what's that? Pain. If a patient is. Oh, pain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I definitely found that there's, you, you need far less pain medication than what I used to give. Um, alternating, you know, alternating doses of, of over-the-counter um, pain medication can completely, you know, can not, not in all cases, but it can nearly eliminate the use of narcotic pain medication. And um, I have not used um, the liposomal bupivacaine, Expiral. Um, I haven't used that yet, but uh, I have been able to get close to uh, limiting the, the, the narcotic use. What, um, how about you? What, do you? what do you think the things have changed the most in your practice? Mm, good question. My practice hasn't been as long as yours. I think um, I, I, particularly like post-surgery, I think it's, it's kind of empathizing with patients more um, to walk them through and explain to them. It's a, it's a, it's a major like emotional surgery. You, it's that, that, that day of revealing the nose, it's, it's, it's almost change of personality sometimes, you know, because it's a, it's a big thing. It's a, a lot of patients have spent years to get to the point yeah. to finally make the leap of having it done. So um, I, 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 I often try and almost tell, 
overplay of saying what a change it's going to be because it, it can. Some people don't care, but there are a lot of patients who they, they, it, it costs them a lot of money to get the surgery done. They've, they really want great results. And the bulk of the, the, the patients like that, yeah, I, I love being able to walk that journey with them and say, listen, anytime you come back and you carry on coming back and some people love that. Other people, it's just once and you never see them again. Yeah. yeah. You know, one thing I, that actually makes me think about something too. So yeah, there, there is another aspect to it that's I think that has helped me a lot. And that is um, trying to anticipate what potential, what's the specific questions that the patient or, or anxieties that they may encounter, especially given whatever their particular problem is. So I try to tell them ahead of time, this is what you, you, you may find this or think this at this time. And I need you to remember what I'm saying right now, because at the time you're going to wonder to yourself for, so for example, um, you have a teenager, you know, somebody's late teens, early twenties, and they have a, a mild, you know, a bulbous tip, mildly, a mildly bulbous tip. Um, and you are going, and that's, let's say that's the majority of the problem. And you know exactly what to do about that. You have to prepare them for the fact that the nose early, early on, isn't going to actually necessarily even look any better than what it does now. And you have to make sure that they can understand, you know, and you can tease them and kid around them and say, you know, I know, it, you know, you're at, at 19, you're not exactly someone who's probably really super interested in waiting, but this is not instant gratification on this particular one. It's going to take some time. And I promise you, you're going to think that it's, you're going to, it's going to be swollen at first and you'll be able to accept that. But when it gets to be about four to six weeks later, at that point, you're going to think to yourself, it ought to look the way it should now, because it's already been four to six weeks. But I promise you, you're going to get to four to six weeks and you're going to see, look at it and you're going to think to yourself, I don't think he did enough. But when you think that, remember that I told you at four to six weeks, you are going to think that it is, that it might not have been enough. But if you just wait it out longer, you're going to see that it's going to, you know, going to get better. And it starts out, that's where you have somebody with, you know, a more subtle problem. Um, but there are problems that are, you know, the more, the bigger problems, the more obvious problems, the structural problems, big dorsal humps, um, you know, significant width discrepancies, big dorsal hump and significant width discrepancies are instant gratification. And you can tell a person there's a very good likelihood that you're going to like what you see in this area very, very soon. But let me tell you what, here's some things that you might need that you're going to have to wait on. And if you, if you listen to me now, right now, when I tell it to you, it's a prediction, um, and it's guidance and it's advice. But if I explain it to you later, then it's an apology. So that's why I'm going to tell you now. Very interesting. So coming back to what you asked me there as well, the, the one thing I think probably the biggest tool for me post-surgery is I'm taking, getting guy taking photographs throughout the operation for my own learning experience. But also what's been great is that gets put into a PowerPoint of maybe 20 slides, which is every step of the operation. So patient will come in i'll remove all the bandages take all the sutures out clean them up and we sit down and then we're going to go through so first go through the gunter diagram this is what i did now let's look at the photographs and jeff patients just sit there with their mouths gaping open because they normally used to only a small little seeing only a few stitches on columella for example but now you've actually shown them step by step and then what i also have done is that's in a pdf document so i'll email it to them and it's, just, it's great because the patient actually feels they've actually seen so much more because they don't think that you're spending two or three or four hours doing such intense surgery that you've trained for 20 years for. They just see a little result. So I, I've really right. enjoyed that very much. 
I think that's kind of fun. I have never done that, but I, 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 I would for the, especially for the right people. I mean, some of my patients, I feel like they'd pass out, but there are probably some that would love it. Yeah, yeah. I used to take, and I was taking actually, you know, for, um, I still do sometimes I used to do a lot more like what you've said. I do, I used to do a lot more step-by-step photos, um, because I was, you know, trying to prepare a lot of talks and teaching and, and then video. And I was taking a lot of, you know, full length videos on, on, on cases and, you know, and then I would say, I think afterwards, okay, was that one useful? You know, and then, so I would either keep it or not keep it. And, you know, from there I've been able to, you know, create kind of a catalog of, you know, basically in my, it's not, I don't have any, I don't have it in mind to create some sort of a, you know, a repository or Atlas or something, but I have a file that I keep that says it's a, you know, toolbox. And so all of my, every little trick, you know, all the little tricks are in the toolbox and I edit those videos and sometimes I even annotate them or, and so on. And, um, and so that's been more of a hobby just to keep the, uh, that keep the toolbox there. Yeah, that's great. So we, we opening a new surgery. I use it for the residents a lot. Yeah. So, so I think that's one of the things I love doing is, so if we traveling and operating elsewhere and the, my normal cameraman's not there, give it to the resident because they need to learn. And this is what Faisal of Payton showed me so much. If you can take good photographs, you are thinking with from a surgical perspective because the photograph is to teach other surgeons. Um, so start off by only taking photographs in the operations. You're not scrubbing up. You're not observing. You're taking photographs if you're not making notes, like you said earlier. Yeah. yeah the, 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 so we're hoping to open a new center, a surgical center in about three, four months' time, and we're going full out to video everything. So we'll have like five video cameras in in each surgery with a guy sitting and he can edit it, et cetera. But I think that's the next step from having photographs to now actually live recording each one. Um, so I'm, I'm excited yeah. for that. Eh? Let me repeat what I said earlier. You are an academician, my friend. You just, just what you just, just the fact that you would think to do that, you know, that is, that's what a teacher does. You know, you have, you have five cameras. I mean, my goodness, I, I don't even have a video cameraman. No, we're, do we're not there stuff. yet. We're gonna, we, we hope so. We hope so. You know, it's, it, and that's the lovely thing about chatting to so many of these guys is you, you, so everyone has something to add, you know. I mean, this has been now what we've been speaking for for uh, more than 40 minutes. And there's so many little pearls that have come out of here. Eh? So, yeah, Jeff, so let me try and think well, how, how to, what else I want to ask you? I mean, it's an opportunity to speak to the world champ. Tell me a little bit about World Rhinoplasty Day. How, how was that for you? So that was interesting. So, I mean, from this is, I'll give you the perspective of a, you know, participant's perspective because, you know, you were immersed in it as the planner. Um, so at first I thought it was crazy. Um, I figured these guys, what in the world they're going to do, you know, 10 minute talks, hundred and some, I don't know how many were there, 140 talks, something like that. All 10 minutes long. I looked at the list of the names. You got teams from all over, like the, I mean, they're creating teams. So they're creating like a competitive vibe here. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of interesting. I'm like, okay. And then, you know, first, you know, of course I'm like honored, you know, that they, you know, they asked me or my, you know, US, uh, you know, Jay Calvert asked me to do it. Of course, Jay's a good friend. And I was like, oh, that's nice, Jay, you know, uh, but I, and I'm excited about this. It's Cam and Stu, you know, should be fun. And, you know, then the thing starts going and I'm like, my goodness, this is like a production. This is like a, it's a, like a, a telethon on, you know, on network, you know, network TV here. And so I'm watching some of these presentations. I'm like, wow, that was really good. And it, so I, 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 it, it took me a while. I think I, um, until the actual day of, I didn't realize, you know, how large scale, you know, it would be in terms of its production. And, you know, I got asked to 
give a particular talk um, on a t- I was asked to give the talk for the topic. I didn't choose it. And they really wanted me to create something that was, you know, new. And so um, I thought, okay, well, I'll give it a try. And so I created something and I hadn't shown it to anyone, um, you know, other than, you know, I don't even think my wife saw it. She always comes and peeks in here and sees what I'm doing. I don't think she saw this one. So I figured, okay, well, I'll just give, I'll just wing it. I'm watching all these very, very, you know, highly technical um, talks where for me, it was great because I'm taking some notes. I'm like, Ooh, I like that. Uh, I'm learning some things here. And, you know, mine, I figured, well, mine is, mine's not technical. It's actually has more to do with what you and I have been talking about or a lot about patient selection. So we haven't gotten into that really, but um, it was about like, you know, how do you, you know, keys to having success and, and, you know, patient selection and planning and um, uh, pitfalls and that sort of thing. So I figured, you know, I hadn't even considered the fact that, you know, that there's some competition in here and that maybe I might be, you know, be able to, to do well. in it. I just figured I'd be the boring talk, you know, cause I'm not technical. And so I do the thing and, uh, it completely took me by surprise. Like when you guys were calling, I'm like, you're like, you're like, Hey Jeff, um, you know, they like your talk. You know, I think you're going to be in the, you're going to be in the, in with the finalists. I'm like, what? I'm like completely, you know, floored by this. So and you're like, yeah, and you're going to be on camera. And of course, it's, I don't remember what time of night it was at that point. So of course I had to go get dressed. So I didn't want to look, I didn't want to look like a, you know, a fool. So I was, uh, I was shocked. I'll put it that way. I was shocked. Oh, no, it was, it was great. So we had the, the editors of all these big journals and um, it was really, who was going for second place? You know, <laughs> it was, I, I, could, I wasn't a part of, of, of the, the, the judging as it were. I mean, I had to just kind of, overall look after everything but it was cool there yeah um okay jeff so last last little point i want to ask you um i mean we can talk forever but how do you think COVID has changed things dramatically and it's especially changed how education in rhinoplasty has happened with this uh, plethora of um webinars etc i'm i'm concerned in a way that webinars it it's not giving enough practical training people are going to get a lot of information from the webinar how how do you foresee us over the next while trying to adapt how we're going to be teaching and practicing rhinoplasty because of what's happened with COVID? yeah Yeah, well there's there's a lot there um okay well i think you know first of all i do think that there is value and i think that because it's such an immersive topic and you know we were talking before about it's it's so much is in your head that you know Filling your brain with more, a little bit more here and there, especially if it's things that are maybe a little different. So if you have access to some different thoughts and ideas that you would not have had access to otherwise, and it's easier for you to see it and get to it, that's probably a good thing. So, um, and because some of it you may just completely say is rubbish and then others you might say, Ooh, I never knew that. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought of it. So I think the access to, to different points of view and different thoughts, that's good. And so I hope that you know, webinars continue so that we can get access to these international people. You know, you and I are talking here in South Africa. I mean, like I can hear you like you're next door. Um, and so this is great. I think your podcast is great. Like, so, you know, hearing like the, the this is an easy way to get the real deal from somebody. You know, if you want to know, like, you know, what's actually going on in a format like this, it's hard to, you know, bullshit and yes. lie. And we allowed to swear on the podcast. Yes, 100 percent. I love it. Oh, good. Perfect. Bullshit. So, uh, so I think that's good. Um, the in-person learning is going to continue to be, you know, important. Um, 
not only just from like we talked about visiting, I still believe that that's that that's that that's good. But one thing you can't replace in these is that when I would go to like the Rhinoplasty Society meeting and I would park myself, I would always often I would sit next to Roland Daniel. I always go up toward the front and try to sit get next to him because he and I would just start, you know, he, somebody would be talking and we'd be drawing and what the hell is he talking about? And we're like, How, what's he, you know, and we'd go back and forth about it, you know, and try to figure out like what these people were saying. And, and then we would talk in between and then we'd get a few more people around and be like, did you understand that? Um, I'd say some of the things I learned, that some of the most important things I learned were in those formats. And you don't have to sit with Roland Daniel. You can sit with a couple, anybody, you know, a couple friends and, you know, when you're done, you know, you can try to dissect out what it is that, that was presented. And I think that's helpful. Um, clubs like, you know, there are travel type clubs and things like that. And, you know, we don't have so many of those things anymore. I know the, um, I did spend a little bit of time with the, uh, the crazy, uh, you know, rhinoplasty research group, the European guys, you know, Olivier and, uh, and Eve Savans in that group and Rollins kind of in there too. And, um, George Marcel was, it was there and, you know, um, Milos, who's completely nuts, Kovacevic. I think those travel groups are pretty cool. Um, you know, people who spend time together and, you know, sort of geek out about things. Um, where COVID's going to come in is that I'm hoping that the travel part, I'm hoping that the travel part will come back, but that will keep, keep some access to the, to the web-based stuff too. What, I mean, is that been your, I mean, what have, what have others been saying too? Is that, is that uh, roughly what you're hearing? Yeah, I think people are desperate to meet in person again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I look forward to coming to America again. Yeah. yeah, like, so for example, to do a visit, you know, for like we, I've wanted, I would love to go to South Africa, Brenna, and, and I'd love to have you come here, but, you know, neither of us can do that. Yeah. Jeff. Um, and then going to Europe. It's been, it's been so, so interesting talking to you now. Well, it's kind of silly. It's inspiring. It's really great. It's, I think, it, I mean, to be a committed family man, kids running the academics, operating like you do, not just rhinoplasty, man, it's fantastic. And, and uh, I think the cherry on the cake is that you, you were the inaugural winner of World Rhinoplasty Day. And, and yeah, I appreciate the fact that we can take an hour of your time um, to chat about these things. And I think the listeners... Yeah, it's it's good to kind of climb into understanding how how somebody who's at this level works. So I, I really appreciate it. I appreciate your vulnerability. I appreciate the stuff we spoke about. And yeah, I hope that uh, you have a a great uh, year in the department and, and family and all that kind of stuff. And I really hope that we can get you to South Africa soon. Thanks, Cam. And I just want to again say thank you and also to you know commend you on this project. I really think it's, I really believe in it. I think you're doing, a, I think you're doing great work with this. I do think it's really valuable to bring, you know, to bring people together. Um, and I am very eager to, to, uh, to support you in any way that I can in all of, in all of the works that you're doing. I, I really am impressed. So thank awesome. you. Thanks. So this brings us now to the end and I'm not going to be able to tell you guys who've waited so long about Carl Stortz that you can get a discount um, if you send an email to this email address and ask them, and then you can be able to get this, some of these cool instruments to use in your, literally in your surgical toolbox. So you need to send an email to, um, this is it. It is s.mazibuko at carlstorts.coza. So let me spell it out for you. It's s.mazibuko at carlstorts, which is k-a-r-l-s-t-o-r-z dot c-o dot z-a. 
So s.mazibuko at carlstorts.co.za. Send them a message. Carl Storts, thanks for your support. And Jeff, that brings us to the end, eh? Uh, I'm getting back into bed now, and I'm sure you'll be heading out that way soon. Thanks again, Cam. Have a great night.